On this season, we'll be covering our vehicles of hysteria, how pop culture and the media shape our psychology and society, and how our national mythologies manipulate the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. I don't know, I'm still trying to get sponsored, man. Like, who doesn't want to be famous? Hi guys, love you. Sprung forth from Paris Hilton's famous for being famous forehead, was a young woman named Kim Kardashian and the now legendary family that surrounded her, who created a reality TV empire based on their authentic drama. Eventually, it would garner them hundreds of millions of followers on Instagram. Kendall Jenner is Kim's younger half-sister and a fellow influencer, who became, in 2017, the face of one of the most hated ad campaigns in American history. The short film, as PepsiCo called it, was almost three minutes long, starting with a dewy, bright blue Pepsi can cracking open. Next, a shot of an artsy man soaked in sweat, playing his cello on a rooftop until he hears a commotion in the street below. And there he sees it, the happiest protest in American history. A perfectly curated cast of multicultural millennials and Gen Zers who dance and hold handmade cardboard signs with peace signs painted childishly across them, with one reading, join the conversation. Cut to a woman wearing a hijab, poring over photos she's taken, unhappy with the shots until she, too, sees this joyous protest and joins. And then, there she is, the megastar, Kendall Jenner, just modeling her heart out in a lavish street-side photo shoot. As the crowd passes her, she cocks her head, a concerned curiosity almost furrowing her potentially Botoxed brow. The same multicultural cast is playing music together on the street, the passionate cello guy front and center, and cut to a group of black folks beaming and breakdancing, and Kendall is standing there, thinking, her hands on her hips, until cello guy walks by her, giving her a little smile and a head tilt, calling her coolie. She removes her blonde wig defiantly, heroically wipes away her lipstick, the camera passing some hip, gender non-conforming individuals, and then settling on a line of deeply, profoundly unthreatening cops, free of that typical, terrifying riot gear. This line of gingerbread cops look over the growing crowd with a placid sourness, 
And then Kendall grabs a Pepsi from a backyard party ice bucket of various Pepsi products. She fist bumps her way through the protest until she bravely steps up to that thin blue line. And then she does it. She achieves national peace between what we can reasonably assume is the Black Lives Matter movement and the police by handing them one Pepsi like a flower in the barrel of a gun. The woman in the hijab finally gets the perfect shot as the cop smiles, pouring the refreshing Pepsi down his plush gullet. Everyone cheers and high-fives while drinking Pepsis. The Pepsi-drinking cop looks at the cop beside him and does this smiling shrug. It looks like he's thinking, I guess this Antifa ain't so bad after all. I mean, we all love Pepsi. We're all Americans. How different can we really be? You will likely remember the record-breakingly swift condemnation that this example of hollow brand activism ignited, sparking outrage across the already smoldering social media wars, also becoming a joke, a meme, a parody on SNL. Pepsi quickly pulled the ad campaign, but it was far too late. This advertisement would wreck the consumer perception levels, reaching the lowest in 10 years. Kendall Jenner took a lot of heat, and it would take a while for her to doctor her brand to undo the damage that this fakeness had caused, this lack of authenticity, her selling out to an exploitive corporation ready to cash in on our culture wars. Today, we're talking about the history of the social media influencer, a difficult archetype to define, but we're specifically looking at the use of individual personality of real people and how companies learned 150 years ago just how powerful personal authenticity can be in mass marketing and how it can control the human unconscious and hypnotize us all into hungry consumers. Smiling, happy Aunt Jemima, famous for her secret recipe, pancakes, waffles, and buckwheat. Have you got a tempt to late and tantalize an old plantation saying for us today, Aunt Jemima? You can't buy happiness, but you can earn it. Yes, Aunt Jemima, and I guess we all want to be happy. In 1893, a wild, enormous, unparalleled event took place called the World's Columbian Exposition, the Chicago World's Fair, which was commemorating the year Columbus discovered America with more pomp and circumstance than you could imagine. 690 acres were fully transformed with original neoclassic architecture, man-made canals and lagoons, the very first moving sidewalk which took attendees to see other technological wonders, offering all the food of the world, exciting rides and prizes, life-sized replicas of Columbus's ships, live music, and a huge variety of artistic displays, with immersive and horrifying exhibits of other non-white cultures, but that's a story for another time. Now, imagine this with me. 
At one point, a group of attendees was looking everywhere for their friend who they had not seen for hours. Finally, they stepped into the world's largest flower barrel, one that had been transformed into a kind of cabin to find their missing bestie. And then there he was, leaning against the countertop, Thomas Edison, messily eating little pancakes covered in jelly with both hands, served to him with a song by a character named Aunt Jemima. Or so the story goes. A 59-year-old black woman and former slave named Nancy Green has been called America's first living brand, the actual first living trademark patented by the Davis Milling Company. In 1889, she would make her debut as a caricature of the happy enslaved mammy archetype on the front of America's first ready-made pancake mix. Nancy Green, as Aunt Jemima, would sing and tell nostalgic plantation stories of the Old South, how happy the enslaved had truly been with their benevolent captors. Her appearance at the fair proved a sensation, and Nancy Green would travel the U.S., making thousands of appearances at festivals and food expos, grocery stores, and flea markets. The character of Aunt Jemima's backstory went like this. When she was enslaved, she had lived in a small cabin in Louisiana, a cook for a plantation owner and a proud confederate named Colonel Higby. One day, when the evil Union soldiers burst into the plantation house, threatening to rip the mustache right off of poor Higby's face, Aunt Jemima heroically distracted them with the delicious smell of her pancakes, allowing Higby just enough time to escape the northern clutches. Another story told about Aunt Jemima was that she actually revived a group of sailors who had suffered a shipwreck with the elixir of her transcendently fluffy pancakes. Nancy Green would portray Aunt Jemima for 20 years and would die in a freak accident in 1923, hit by a car in Chicago. Nancy Green had been a cook, had been enslaved, but those traits were expanded into a fabricated, curated life, look, and story. Many more black women would play the part of this authentic cook from the antebellum South, and they too would make appearances all the way into the mid-1960s. Now, Nancy Green was not an influencer per se, but she did become a kind of brand of herself, one that was not actually authentic at all. But it didn't matter. All that mattered was the illusion, and the companies knew it. The Sydney Morning Herald of 1862 advertised carte de visite portraits, saying that you have the opportunity of distributing yourself among your friends and letting them see you in your favourite attitude and with your favourite expression. Social media as we know it may be unprecedented, but it isn't totally new. 
So come with me back to the earliest form of visual social media, a curated authenticity that allowed people to signal their individualism to each other. In the 1860s, photography had become accessible to the masses, and one of the very first photos taken in America was, you guessed it, a selfie. In 1839, Robert Cornelius would set up his camera, run into the shot, hold his pose for the required 15 minutes, and print a picture of himself on a copper plate, a process that, at the time being, only the very rich could afford. But after a couple decades, photographs became available in a cheap form called Cata <laughs> uh, Visite on expensive four-inch cardstock, and it would spark a major craze known then as cartomania. By and large, they were portraits exchanged by hand and through the mail and even overseas, and each person would create an album of their friends and family, of celebrities, their crushes, and yes, their friends' pets. As was custom, these albums would sit in the living room or parlor, ready to be perused by each and every guest. Sound familiar? The pictures were expanding out from traditional portraits, and people began posing themselves with objects and backgrounds, staged signifiers of class and fashion, of personal interests, of individual personality, right down to the way they held their bodies and posed their faces. The creation of these scenes was aided by photography studios who helped them embody the latest trends and provided ornate backdrops and props, instructing the sitters to get the best shot. Celebrities got in on the craze early, and photos of theater actors and actresses were some of the most popular and cherished pictures in the album. Abraham Lincoln was cool enough to get in on the craze of the youth, knowing his image was deeply important to his success, and he would pose, intermittently, as an authentic common man, an authentic good father, and an authentic upstanding statesman. People bought them by the thousands. Photography journals complained frequently about the vapid fad, the cliché copycat mentality of the masses, all with the same facial expressions, clothing, and props. They said that those participating in the cartomania were simply creating idealized versions of themselves. The magazine critics of the cartomania were brutal, one writing in a familiar refrain about our own social media, Ever since the fatal invention of albums, farewell peace. Whichever way you turn, requests for your portrait are leveled at you like so many guns. All is acceptable prey. Indifferent features, respectable age, obscure position. Nothing comes amiss to the greedy monster album. A man named Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes would write that, Card portraits, as everybody knows, have become the social currency, the sentimental greenbacks of civilization. Just like today, businesses were ready to capitalize on the trend, and photography studios added their insignia and contact information to the front and back of the card, getting a serious piece of this remarkable trend toward authentic self-expression. 
Over the next few decades, something called public relations, or PR, would come into existence under the careful construction of one man who passed into a kind of relative obscurity, the nephew of Dr. Sigmund Freud. When I came back to the United States, I decided that if you could use propaganda for war, you could certainly use it for peace. And propaganda got to be a bad word because of the Germans using it. So what I did was to try to find some other words. So we found the word Council on Public Relations. More after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And now, back to the show. The 1920s were a time of American affluence. The First World War was over, and it had bolstered industrial business to a fever pitch that would burst by the end of the decade. But not before one man named Edward Bernays saw an opportunity. Bernays had long been influenced by his coke-addled, cigar-smoking, penis-obsessed Uncle Freud, who had recently popularized the idea of the unconscious mind, the deep, dark, animalistic, repressed part of human beings that create behaviors without our knowledge or control. At the time, Bernays was a former World War I propagandist who'd been working to sway American popular opinion as part of the Committee on Public Information. And after the war had ended, Bernays was ready to use the same psychological warfare, as he once called it, to influence Americans into buying shit they didn't need. Shit that was being pumped out at a record rate. It was kind of a brand new thing for the non-rich, buying shit you didn't need. Before the 1920s, disposable income was rare, and most people simply bought the things they needed to get by. But now, companies needed to find a way to make the typical American into the typical American consumer, with Bernays explicitly recommending that they start transforming needs into wants and desires, tapping into American emotion instead of logic, giving products meaning beyond what they are. 
The earliest campaign engineered by Bernays was requested by the president of the American Tobacco Company in an attempt to hit an untapped market. Previously, women had been strongly discouraged to smoke in public and were called fallen women and prostitutes if they did. But the 1920s saw the first wave of feminism, and more and more young women were breaking the boundaries of gender, and it gave Bernays a bright idea. Consulting his Uncle Freud's local protege, psychiatrist A.A. Brill, Bernays was instructed on why women have an unconscious desire to smoke. Cigarette looks like a penis. Women are envious of the penis. Women want to have a penis. Penis equals the feeling of masculine power and emancipation for women. Bernays called these penises torches of freedom and believed that this message would appeal to the emotions of women fighting for their civil and cultural rights. In what may be called the earliest example of brand activism, Bernays set his sights on a major event, the New York Easter Day Parade. Asking his secretary, Bertha Hunt, to pose as a feminist suffragette, she would send out a telegram to a group of rich debutantes that read, in the interest of equality of the sexes and to fight another sex taboo, I and other young women will light another torch of freedom by smoking cigarettes while strolling on Fifth Avenue Easter Sunday. And so, on March 31, 1929, ten fashionable women would stroll beside the parade, casually lighting up cigarette after cigarette, looking glamorous, but not too glamorous, as Bernays said, while they should be good-looking, they should not look too modelly. They needed to be authentic, and also, for the stunt to work, it could not link back to the American Tobacco Company at all. It had to come from the influencer. The press went nuts over these smoking feminists, and pictures ran in many major newspapers, just as Bernays had predicted, and cigarette sales among women immediately soared. He called all of this engineered consent, or, quote, the use of an engineering approach, that is, action based on thorough knowledge of the situation and on the application of scientific principles and tried practices to the task of getting people to support ideas and programs. After this clear success, Bernays was a star to a variety of growing corporations, and he created what we now call cross-promotion, using his own celebrity clients to promote products from other companies he represented in print advertisements and in department store fashion shows. He also invented product placement in films, films with actresses he represented, whom he would then dress in jewelry and clothes for the lavish movie premieres from the companies he also represented. Aside from the products themselves, there was an underlying psychological message also being pushed by this new PR industry that what you buy could express who you are. I wonder why you all want to dress always the same, with the same hats and the same coats, 
I'm sure all of you are interesting and have wonderful things about you. But looking at you in the street, you all look so much the same. And that's why I'm talking to you about the psychology of dress. Try and express yourselves better in your dress. It usually just means you get free skateboard equipment and uh, in turn you promote the company. I don't know, I'm still trying to get sponsored, man. No one will pick me up. <laughs> Have you made a video? Dude, I've sent them everywhere, bro. I just, it's not working. If kids today dream of growing up to be famous on social media, paid to take photos or videos of themselves doing whatever, kids in my day dreamed of being paid to skateboard. Skateboarding has long been an anarchic, rebellious, boundary-pushing sport, though its appeal was in large part because it wasn't a sport, not really. It wasn't in the realm of after-school activities or competitive stress. It was more of an expressive art. It was a kind of freedom. It was a bond. It was an entire culture, and it belonged to the youth, their highest value being pure authenticity. The worst thing you could be called was a poser, which I was called, despite the fact that my middle school boyfriend broke up with me because I cared more about skateboarding than him. He was right. Skateboarding has been around since surfers invented it in the 40s and 50s, and it waxed and waned in popularity and style, getting big in the 70s as the youth culture was rejecting the corporate suburban world of their conformist parents. And then again, it rose from the ashes in the 1990s when a teenager named Rodney Mullen invented the ollie and the kickflip, spawning an entire new movement called street style. At this time, the major skate companies that were producing gear, most notably Powell Peralta, were participating in the kind of casual, discreet marketing that Edward Bernays certainly would have blessed. At the time, there was this coveted opportunity called getting sponsored, which meant free gear and travel to events, spots in skate videos, and eventually thousands of dollars a month. Those getting sponsored under Powell Peralta and the other major brands were often 12 to 18 years old, and they donned branded shirts, branded boards, and stickers to spread across skate parks and city walls, bathroom mirrors, and street signs. This kind of marketing is known as mass product seeding, sending free products to popular people, hoping that others will subconsciously link them to the brand so they can be like their favorite skater without their favorite skater seeming like a corporate sellout bitch. These kids weren't standing in front of a camera cheesily recommending brands like celebrities might. This was authentic marketing, grassroots, word of mouth, which made it cool. But behind the scenes, the authenticity was not really a true value at Powell Peralta, and skaters received a full binder of the behaviors they could and could not engage in. Instructions on how to pose for photos, how to act at competitions, how to dress, and how to talk. 
But skaters will be skaters, and the rebellion against the big guys came swiftly and without mercy in the mid-90s when a 27-year-old skateboarder named Steve Rocco started his own gear company, World Industries, snaking away several of the most famous skateboarders that rode for Powell Peralta. At this time, if you weren't a top 15 skater, you weren't shit. But Rocco saw an opportunity to bring in ragtag punks, micro-influencers, who may not have had the best technical skill, but had the best personalities. Which, in skate culture, began to mean the most extreme. Cashing out all he could from his credit card, getting in with dangerous loan sharks and eventually a venture capitalist, Rocco blasted Powell Peralta as fake and phony, as corporate old news, as stuffy, where his new company was brash, a mess of anarchy and shock, with a magazine called Big Brother that would be considered deeply, deeply offensive today, full of the contrarian attitude that came on the heels of the anti-drug, satanic panic-soaked evangelical Reagan years. It was all about street style, kickflips and heel flips and grinding rails and creating new tricks and sharing your tricks with each other, spending hours trying to come up with something new, trying to perfect something your friend made up, passing it on again and again, kind of like a TikTok dance routine. See, I know what's going on. But Powell Peralta did not believe that this was going to catch on. No way. But it did. And suddenly, world industries exploded. Well, here's something your children may be reading that you should definitely know about. It's a shocking magazine. It tells you how to commit suicide, tells you all about drug use, and also explicit descriptions of sex. As you might imagine, this skater-owned company was not prepared to approach this level of success and the cash that followed. Rocco traveled with his crew of teenagers all over the country to competitions and shows, flooding them with money, sometimes 10 grand a week, with shopping sprees, five-star hotels, and all the room service their little hearts desired. All they had to do was skate and make videos, be their authentic, offensive selves while sporting the company's gear and riding their boards, creating constant content through what is now called content marketing, growing a whole culture around the world industry's brand. Director Spike Jones would get his start filming skate videos of insane tricks and brutal falls, extreme pranks and the bong Olympics, anything subversive they could invent. It worked well because the videos were never overt with their marketing. The brands were mentioned only casually in the opening and closing credits. Teenagers wanted to be associated with the brand because of these influencers. And to be like them, kids and teenagers didn't mind becoming little brand ambassadors themselves, trying to express their individuality by the brands and skaters they repped. Skateboarding would finally truly enter the mainstream, when a group of young men began making videos under the name CKY, or Camp Kill Yourself, most notably Bam Margera. The paragon of recklessness, Johnny Knoxville, would get his start in a Big Brother video 
shooting himself point blank in the chest while wearing a bulletproof vest. And the success of that video led Spike Jones to MTV, collaborating on a little show called Jackass that would take the youth culture by storm, creating an army of suburban skaters, launching each other into shrubs from a shopping cart, or filming ridiculous pranks at the mall with embarrassing Ricky attempts at the ollies that they'd never really be able to do. The once authentic skater-owned, now $10 million company called World Industries would watch as posers flooded that same mall with their new skate shop chains like Zoomies, buying the latest in chunky skate shoes, and hoodies advertising brands that were growing more and more popular. It was killing the punk rock anarchy authenticity that the true skaters were dedicated to. By 2001, skating had become more popular with teenagers than baseball. Sponsored skater prank culture would pave the way for YouTube influencers like Logan and Jake Paul to become fantastically rich off of dangerous, offensive, brash, boys-will-be-boys behavior that still held the authentic I-don't-give-a-fuck persona. Not unlike Steve Rocco and his gaggle of teenage skaters traveling lavishly across the country together, there are now mansions that house teenage TikTokers and YouTubers that are always stocked with camera people, managers, handlers, and unlimited cash as long as they create that constant content, building up the brands of themselves and each other. But before YouTube and before social media, this wild new yonder called the internet was providing places for all kinds of people to become extremely influential, but this time from the comfort of their own homes. No devastating injuries required. It spans the globe like a superhighway. It is called internet. When Carol Phillips wants to know what's going on in her community, she takes a walk to the computer in her family room. More after this. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Magical Overthinkers podcast, a show for thought spiralers, exploring the subjects we can't stop overthinking about. From celebrity worship to social media comparison. I'm your host, Amanda Montel. I am a textbook overthinker. I'm also an author and the host of the podcast Sounds Like a Cult. Every other Wednesday on the Magical Overthinkers podcast, I'll interview a charismatic expert guest about some confounding subject from the zeitgeist. Think narcissism, imposter syndrome, girl math. If you're like me and feel like the volume in your brain is just way too high sometimes, my hope is for this show to make some sense of the senseless. Listen to Magical Overthinkers now, wherever you get your podcasts. 
And now, back to the show. The web log, eventually shortened to the blog, entered public consciousness in the early 2000s. And suddenly, the private lives and opinions of anyone could be seen by hundreds, thousands, millions of people. One of the most popular topics was fashion, and the fashion world would suddenly be seriously influenced by independent bloggers in 2006, the year that Women's Wear Daily declared the blogs took over the tents at New York Fashion Week, and the fans of these now prominent bloggers were granted a kind of exclusive access through these more authentic figures, figures like them, ones they could trust far more than a brand representative with a corporate agenda. There was also the new archetype of the mommy blogger, mothers who wrote about their intimate experiences as a parent in a kind of diary format, ones that were willing to talk about the authentic mess of motherhood beyond the expectations of perfection that were weighing many women down. On the flip side, Motherhood was also becoming a brand, a polished aesthetic that would provide mommy bloggers with product endorsements galore. Kardashian-Jenners and their rich ilk aside, the explosion of blog influencers corresponded with the 2008 financial crisis, a time when unemployment was high and opportunities for non-rich millennials felt almost non-existent. The blog democratized the brand, making it possible to become famous enough to make money writing about what you were passionate about by creating a marketable, idealized version of who you are. By the time we reached our own personal cartomania, Instagram, in 2010, our friends had become our followers. And we were followers too, invited into the private lives of the people we envied, and companies immediately saw the value. Now, polls have shown that 92% of consumers trust influencers to recommend products rather than the more classic kind of celebrity official endorsement, i.e. the Kendall Jenner Pepsi scandal. And consumers also trust these influencers to recommend brands more than their own friends and family. But with thousands or millions of followers, not only do influencers hold this capitalistic power through product placements, but they can also hold a similar influence over public opinion. In a more innocent example, you might remember our episode on the Momo Suicide Challenge, a ridiculous urban legend in which an anonymous person apparently used chat apps to convince kids to kill themselves. A story that was largely spread by Kim Kardashian, who posted a chain letter to her Instagram. It's such a weird time right now, and I know me as like a content creator, how can I like go about my life and live my life when, you know, all these children are being treated the way that they are? Like I just, as a new mom, especially, I just wanted to like run to them and save them and you feel so helpless. More nefariously, 
QAnon conspiracy theorists used social media influencers to spread messages to a younger, more progressive audience, essentially rebranding to what writers would later dub pastel QAnon, hiding their messages behind typical pretty pastel-colored text memes, QAnon adherents would spread the hashtag #SaveTheChildren with dangerously false statistics about sex trafficking that understandably hit on the emotions of influencers and their followers and played right into the far right's elite pedophile cult narrative. They also used false information, scare tactics, and conspiracy theories about Big Pharma to manipulate the already vaccine-suspicious New Age wellness and yoga influencers into promoting the idea that COVID, at least in part, is a dangerous hoax. Influencers, just like each of us, are fallible, controlled by unconscious emotions, manipulatable, as former American propagandist turned public relations sensation Edward Bernays realized a hundred years ago. Oh yeah, these kids love their likes too. Gives you a good feeling when someone likes the picture. I like it when people like my pictures and it makes me feel really good. Mm -hmm. Ah, but what about fame? Like who doesn't want to be famous? There is a lot of talk about how much social media is changing us, our relationships to ourselves and others, and I don't think that's debatable. But perhaps it's worth considering that the impetus for all this self-branding might not be anything new. We can look first to the Latin root of the word person, persona, meaning a mask worn by actors, or a character in a play. In 1959, a social psychologist named Irving Goffman used the metaphor of the theater in his book called The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. The concept he put forth, one still used in sociology today, is called the dramaturgy, which is essentially an analysis of the way that we present ourselves to others. When we are on stage, as Goffman called it, when we know we are being watched, we're always performing for our audience using what he called impression management through sign vehicles or signals, which often vary based on the person or people we're interacting with, whether they're your in-group or your out-group. Our roles change, and so we do too. You're going to be a very different person at your family dinner than you're going to be later at that raging kegger than you will be the next day making a post about donating money to whatever cause represents you. Offstage, Goffman says, we get the relief of our more intimate bonds, where we can be ourselves, where we can be more authentic, take off the mask and the costume, talk our meanest shit, be unpolished. But at the same time, offstage, we're still crafting who we will be on stage the next time, 
With friends helping choose outfits and backdrops for our post, what to text back to an ex, what outfit to wear for your Tinder date, each act helping you create an idealized self, just like the critics complained about during the cartomania. But also, in terms of those who brand themselves most successfully, we can also look to our biological instincts that tell us that we should follow them. Though the oldest of our hunter-gatherer communities were relatively communal and egalitarian, there were still those who stood out, who possessed skills that moved the community forward as a whole and should, therefore, be mimicked. Maybe superior hunting skills, or innovative tool creation, or skills at attracting the hottest mates. This gave them influence, prestige, and it gave them followers. Because following these hunter-gatherer stars meant they might be able to get some of that trickle-down success to learn how to get those hotter mates or the spoils of more skillful hunting. Fast forward our primitive, unconscious, biological brains thousands and thousands and thousands of years all the way into the context of a corporate America obsessed with influence in 2021, the influential members of our national communities look a little bit different. You can ask any kid what they want to be when they grow up, and an alarming number will tell you, I want to be famous. And now, with this democratized internet, at any moment, they might be. Just like the financial crisis of 2008, when bloggers found new ways to make money, wages are still appallingly low and better-paying jobs are rife with competition, self-branding has presented millennials and now Gen Z with a whole new means of income. And though the already rich Kardashians rule social media, just like Steve Rocco realized back in the late 90s, companies are seeing micro-influencers as a new frontier, those with far less followers, but who look far more authentic than those at the top tier obsessively crafting their brand. And so, becoming a paid influencer is a goal more attainable than ever. The Kendall Jenner Pepsi fiasco can be understood as a sharp departure from the kind of subtle skateboarding and Bernays-influenced influencer marketing that has worked far better with millennial consumers. This generation has now grown into the most important adult market, and for the last few years, massive corporations have been armed with an important statistic that 64% of millennials are more likely to buy from brands that share their political or social values. So Kendall gave that cup Pepsi, he drinks it, and then the crowd in unison applauds applauds the union between these two, and then they just stop protesting or something? What the fudge? This is a joke. This is some kind of joke, right? So you telling me all the folks that lost their lives to police brutality, all they had to do was give them a Pepsi, and everything would have been all right. <laughs> Pepsi, this is why I like Coke. But there exists a line that cannot be crossed one Bernays knew about when he rolled out his torches of penis, I mean freedom. 
Pepsi was far too overt. They were clearly trying to link their brand to the emotion of the Black Lives Matter protest for sales. But unlike the American tobacco company that knew it had to be subtle with its brand activism, that they had to let the authenticity of the influencer be the main influence, Pepsi's ad came off deeply phony and also deeply offensive to a generation desiring brand activism while at the same time not really seeing a reason to trust the brands themselves. As we saw with Pastel QAnon, these influencers are trusted beyond the various products they endorse and thus can spread conspiracy theories on accident, but can also spread other political ideas to millions of people, as we saw during the Black Lives Matter protests, as black squares filled our feeds, and as we saw with selfies of cute masks during our COVID-19 pandemic, and with the zillion subtle signifiers of our smaller cultural clashes of the last few years. Of course, spreading messages far and wide can be very valuable, and influencers are some of the most listened-to voices in America, for better or for worse. And it's always hard to know when activism is brand activism, more like Pepsi activism than Nancy Green activism, who would use the Aunt Jemima money and leisure time that the job afforded her to work as an anti-poverty and civil rights activist. Just like Pepsi, each of our onstage personas are tiny brands that can participate in our own brand activism, learning the right opinions to signal, to sell, to gain us acceptance and prestige. And at the same time, we're also using our likes and our dislikes, our comments and reshares to influence and create each other. We are all crafting together the brand of America. So maybe this abstraction called authenticity can't really exist because we have to be a part of a group to survive. We aren't meant to be alone. We're meant to bond. And bonding means signaling things to each other, means restraining some of the unconscious parts of who we are, keeping them backstage to protect our primitive brand, to avoid the kind of brand destruction that can come with cultural transgressions, whether in person or online, that can knock people like Kendall Jenner down from their kingdom of influence. Because... For everyone, PR is everything. Even if no one's paying us, we're constantly thinking about what it is we're selling. We do this to belong, to stay safe in our communities, big and small, to be accepted at the least, and maybe even gain the prestige of being admired. But when the stage lights finally go off, are we always just thinking of the next night's performance? Does it matter? As I said, I'm not sure this thing called authenticity even exists. But of course, we can always get nearer to intimacy and honesty and empathy. But social media is not, by virtue, inauthentic. It's just the newest frontier of humanity's 
oldest expressions. The desire, the absolute natural necessity to belong, and the masks we almost always have to wear to make that possible. So what if the authentic is just a story we made up to sell each other shit we don't need? Maybe it's best to accept that we are a nation of micro-influencers, a nation of posers, that we are all actors, and that all the world's a stage. And if you follow me, I'll follow you back. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show we have an extremely special guest named Mara Wilson. You'll remember her as the star of Matilda. She's going to be sharing with us her journey through child stardom. And then coming after that, you can expect an episode that I've been waiting to do for my entire life, horror movies. Now, if you haven't checked out our Patreon, I hope you'll consider it. You can watch our entire two-hour live show. That's our live variety hour with skits and drag and dance and stand-up comedy and special guests like Tinky Winky, Satan, Alex Jones, and John Harvey Kellogg. You can also get access to our patrons-only podcast, Walk With Me, where you can come on a walk with me and even with other patrons, where we talk about the more emotional sides of life, the more philosophical world, while checking out new places every two weeks. Head to the link in our show notes or go to patreon.com slash American Hysteria. You can also go to AmericanHysteria.com to grab up some of our fast-disappearing merch with a very super cool Satanic Illuminati Poison Halloween candy design. Also, please come follow us on social media at AmerHysteria on Twitter and at AmericanHysteria Podcast on Instagram. And if you want to be a real sweetheart, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It really helps the show out. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound design by ClearComo Studios. Research and co-writing by Riley Smith. And editing and co-production by Miranda Zickler. With voice acting by Will Rogers. Thanks, as always, for listening. And the next time you take about 20 selfies before choosing the one you're going to post, you don't have to feel any shame. Because I promise, I'm doing it too. Have a great week.